Uh, this is John Green, the host of Faith Seeking Understanding. Thanks for being here today. Today, this is a sermon. It's not really sort of the, the podcast format or whatever, but it's, it's really a sermon because we're entering in our tradition, we're in, entering into Advent today. And so what we're looking at and what we're thinking about and will be for the next four weeks is, um, for me, the question is, it's, it's for we sing songs like "Come Thou Long Expected Jesus." We're, we're, there's this longing for Him to return, and so we we are changing our focus from what He's done to thinking about His coming again. So we're we're praying, "Come Thou Long Expected Jesus." We're not just singing it. We're we're becoming alive and awake to the idea of this world is not what it should be, but we're praying for what it will be because of what Jesus has already shown us when he came and revealed portions of the kingdom in the work that he did in healing and all that, but then also the things that he told us would happen before the kingdom comes and that kingdom is established fully on the earth. And so we're, we're thinking about that idea. And so for me, I'm thinking of two different sort of themes that would run through Advent. And one is the question, what are you waiting for? Do you have a vision of what the kingdom will be so that when you pray the Lord's Prayer, for instance, that kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Do you have a vision for what that would look like? Because we have plenty of that given to us, particularly in, in prophets like Isaiah, who talk Talk about what will be. So today, what we read in our first lesson was Isaiah 2, 1 to 5. And, and it starts with the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days. And then he begins to give us a vision of what that will look like. Jerusalem, the mountain, the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains, lifted up above the hills. All nations will flow to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. In other words, we don't want to just know. We want to do. We're going to do both those things. And so what Isaiah then goes on to see is the world changed because of that, because God will judge between the nations and decide disputes for many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Sounds good, right? I mean, that, that sounds good to me that we could live in a world that's absent war where nations get along with nations, where there's not division and enmity between nations. That sounds like a wonderful thing. And everything is based right there in Jerusalem at the temple of God. That's sort of a Jewish perspective on what all this will look like. It's sort of what they expected Jesus to, become, to come and begin to establish. So we, we, that's a vision. So they have this vision for what it will look like when Messiah comes. We're going to spend a little bit of time talking about that because I think it has something to do with a vision for us that, that we can interpret the messianic vision of Judaism in a way that's shaped by Jesus because he came to reveal that kingdom, what it will look like. He, he didn't just give a prophetic word. In the healing miracles that he did, we see the renewal of all things and the restoration of all things to the way they're intended to be in a world that's not broken by sin. So then the other thing that we read, we read from Paul speaking to the Romans and he was talking about what is our obligation? Who are we supposed to be? We fulfill the entire law, he says, by loving one another according to the commandment. So he said, if we do that, that'll change the world. If we love our neighbors as ourselves because that won't do any wrong to a neighbor. 
Well, the best way to avoid war, enmity, bitterness, and strife is love. I mean, in the 60s, we discovered that. Nobody knew that before, apparently. But in the 60s, we discovered it, and so we sang every song in the world about all you need is love, love, sweet love, love is all you need. We sang all those kinds of songs. I wish I could teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. That's the Coke commercial. So you got all these other songs that, that that's the decade of love. It's like the age of Aquarius is coming now where there's harmony and understanding. All that, you know, that, that whole vision for the world. And it's a distinctly and deeply Christian view and understanding of the world and how to get there. But our problem is this word love. Because... There's a Christian definition of the word love. And Jesus came for one reason. God so loved the world. Sounds great. It, it is. It's a wonderful thing. But Jesus didn't come and just say, I love you, I love you, I love you. He came to say judgment's real. That there is judgment at the end of this. And, and in the passage today, he says, here's what one of the things it's going to look like is two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. That doesn't sound so great when you put it in those terms. It, it makes it harder for me to understand. It makes it harder for me to deal with because I don't want that to happen. If I'm working with you, if I'm doing things with you, then it's probably out of a relationship that we're going to be doing those things. And so one of us is going to be taken. And the first thing I want to correct, make very clear, is has nothing to do with a rapture. So don't get in your head when you read Matthew 27 or, or the parallel passage that we're going to talk about in Luke 17. Don't get in your head that that has anything to do with a rapture. Because Jesus contextualizes all this, and the context is this. He contextualizes it in that Matthew only speaks of um, Jesus speaking of until the day of Noah. So in the days of Noah, here's what happened. And then he says this about two together, one taken, the other left, and two working together and the other left. But in Luke, Luke fleshes this out a little more. He gives us a little more of what Jesus had to say. And so here's the way that it reads in Luke. This is Luke 17, beginning at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. That's not the rapture. It's the opposite of the rapture. <laughs> That's those who were sinning and living in sin. They're the ones being taken in these passages. They're not the righteous ones. So that's the, the main thing to understand is that's not talking about the rapture and people who, um, who, who have that pre-millennial, pre-trib kind of idea about um, eschatology, which is end times thought, um, that they don't say that is. It sounds a lot like it until you put that context in it. When you put the context in it, you see, oh, this is not the righteous being taken away. It's the unrighteous people that are being taken away in both those examples. There's no other way to read it, really. But... We're not always great at contextualizing. I'm not saying that I've known that for very long because to me, when I've read it most of my life, it sounded the other way because I didn't contextualize it back to, oh, Noah, Sodom. Yep, not the same. That's not rapture. That's the opposite. That's judgment. And so when the Son of Man is revealed, when he comes back, 
even if you you believe that eschatology, when Jesus comes back, how does he come back? He comes back on a horse leading an army. <laughs> so the ones that will be taken at that point are the unrighteous, and they'll be gone. And the rest of us, hopefully, me, will exist still. I'm positive that I do. I was baptized in the name of Jesus. So I've received the Holy Spirit, so I'm not... I don't lack confidence, but Paul does say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, so I don't ever take anything for granted, right? I mean, because that would be the big mistake, because if you take it for granted, then you stop working out your salvation. You accept it as a fait accompli when Jesus died on the cross, but that's not the way we're supposed to think about this. So in thinking about, okay, who are we and what, what kind of vision do we need for the future? What kind of, what, what's the vision that should compel us? Right, so what are our expectations about the Messianic age? What are the, the expectations about what Messiah will ultimately do? What's God going to do? Because the problem is we don't have a good analog. Because all we have is what we know, what we can see. We know the world as it is. We don't know what the world looks like as God intended it to be. We have some ideas because I've preached this at funerals. You know, I, I had to preach at the funeral of a young man one time. And my simple question that began the sermon was... How many people here today would agree with me that if you were in charge of the world, a 24-year-old man wouldn't die? And everybody would raise their hand to that, right? Nobody would create a world where it was even possible for a 24-year-old to die, much less anybody else. But, but you begin to look and you go, okay, we don't live in the world that God intended it to be. There's, there's two ways of looking at it, right? Either God's messed up, you know, if there's a God and you claim he's good, then explain this. Explain why this happens. These bad things happen in our world. Genesis 3 says, well, it isn't God's fault, it's our fault. And we don't like taking responsibility. We'd rather put that over onto God and make him deal with it. So, no, is the answer to that. We're Christians. We believe in a good God. We accept responsibility. We expect personal responsibility for what our sins do to other people in spite of the fact that we know only the barest essence of what they actually do to people because the effect that we have on people is not really knowable to us. Because if I sin against Laurie, for instance, and it's an egregious sin and it hurts her, even if we're later reconciled, it shapes her personality. It shapes the way she thinks not only about me, but about Suzanne too, possibly. Um, and so it, it begins to change us. When we're sinned against, that changes us. And it makes us into different kinds of people than we were before that sin happened against us. And so where the world is today is sort of a reflection of the multiplication or exponentiality of all the sins that have ever been committed in the world. And we live in a world that we think is good. We cling to it like grim death because we love it so much. But it, it's nothing like what it will be. So... What are our expectations? What are our hopes? If you had to say, all right, Laurie, Suzanne, give me a list. I've got, I'll give you 10 minutes. Take that long and write down what your hopes for the Messianic age would be. Give them to me now. I mean, you probably do what I would do if you looked at me and told me that. I would look at you and go, I, I, huh. Um, Jesus will come back and everything will be good. Everything will be exactly the way God intended it to be. I mean, it's, it's hard to come up with, oh, this is what it would look like. Isaiah has all kinds of visions that he shares for us about those things. We'll be looking at those over the next couple of weeks. But it, it becomes a difficult thing 
I mean, the last guy who had the best look at an unbroken world was Cain. <laughs> he, he saw something, sort of, kind of, that was okay, but not what it ought to have been because of, well, the sin of his parents. So Adam had a brief look at what it would look like, but he had a very tiny little look at what it would look like because, well, there were only two of them. So how do you extend that? How do you, how do you follow the commandment to be fruitful and multiply and spread over the face of the earth <clears throat> once sins entered the world? So Adam had a small look at the garden, and even that wasn't a compelling vision for him. He wanted to see something else. He wanted to know good and evil, so he took an eight after she took an eight. So <clears throat> then Cain gets a look at, okay, it's not horrible, then what does he do? He commits murder. Well, it didn't take long to go from eating, eating a fruit to committing murder. And so then the world begins to fall even further from that. And then the whole thing ends with Noah. And that's where Jesus is talking about. So the whole, everything is wiped out with Noah because that's um, God's judgment comes on his created order. But what he didn't do was destroy it. And what he says is, I'm not going to destroy it because you, Noah, you're good enough that I won't destroy the world. We'll just start all over again. So what do we get? We get water and that it covers everything. Huh. Sounds like the environment prior to the creation of land and all those other topographical features. So we start all over again. All the animals are gone except for breeding pairs and then sevens of the others. So we, we start all over again. And Noah gets to start with a clean slate. Now it's still fallen and it's still broken because the people who live in it, including Noah, are not perfectly righteous. So you've got, okay, it's not going to be as good as it was, uh, but it'll be better than it was 15 minutes before that or a year before that, because there's the, the, the thought is, is that Noah is on the ark for a year. After God closes him in, he's on the ark for exactly a, a, a solar year, 365 days. So they, they come out into a world that's brand new with great possibilities, but God's got to make a covenant with them not to destroy the world in the same way. And then he says, oh, by the way, there's a little different relationship you're going to have with the rest of the world because prior to that, they were vegetarians. Now God gives them permission to eat meat, which is going to put some further enmity between mankind and the animal world. It's going to put fear into, into all these relationships. So relationships are strained and changed after that. So he's, he got a look at it, but then 15 minutes later, it seems like he plants a vineyard and he gets drunk. And then, well, here we go again. And so we're, we're falling back down in that rabbit hole. So what I wanted to say is, okay, so what is it? What, what was the Jewish expectation of Messiah? Because they rejected him. So what, what are sort of Jewish messianic expectations? So you ask the question, what will happen when Messiah comes? And so I'm going to give you a list of seven or eight things. One is Elijah will appear first. That's prophesied in Malachi. Elijah is going, going to appear first in order to herald the coming of Messiah and to prepare a people for him by causing to repent of their sins, turn back to love for one another and all that. Jesus said, Elijah has come. And he's pointing to one person, and that's John the Baptist, because what you should have heard when I said his point, purpose, is to come back and turn the hearts of the Father to the children, the children to the Father, to get the people to repent of their sins, to become righteous people who are prepared to greet this righteous Messiah. That should have 
You should have heard John the Baptist ministry in that because John said, that's what I'm doing. I'm here to prepare the way for the coming king, for the Messiah who is to come. Now, John missed the boat a little bit about on that because what he missed was he saw there's two comings, right? So there's the coming first for salvation purposes, and then there's the coming later for judgment purposes. John didn't see that first horizon. So that's the first thing that they say will herald the Messianic age. Well, Elijah will come, and he'll prepare the people. He'll explain the law to the people. He'll tell them how to be righteous people. And we'll talk more about that over the next few weeks because it's actually, eh, that's contingent. The coming of Elijah is sort of a contingent idea. It need not occur. If the Jewish people, this is their belief, if the Jewish people do this on their own, then there's no real need for Elijah to come. So in some ways, I look at that and I think, well, you're hedging your bets, right? So if Elijah doesn't come, <laughs> we knew why he wouldn't. We must have done really well on our own. But, but what that does, though, is it impels them to pray, literally, for righteousness among Israel. And so what, what they, they don't just pray, but it's an encouragement to be righteous, to do righteous things, to live a righteous life. In order that you can bring the kingdom of God in and Messiah will come and Elijah's work won't even be necessary because God's preparing for himself a people. So that's one thing. The second thing is, is that, that Ezekiel says there's going to be this, this climactic war, the war of Gog and Magog, that will occur prior to the arrival of the one who can properly only be called by the title Messiah. And that topic, they have no earthly idea who Gog and Magog are. It's not historic kingdoms or anything like that. They, they look and say, we can't say for certain who that might be. And, and we can't even say for certain that battle hadn't already occurred. So they're not sure whether or not it has or, or, or whether it's a physical battle or a spiritual battle, who's going to fight it or whether it's even happened. So that's the other, one of the other things is be this, this enormous battle, whether it's spiritual or physical, we don't know. Where it is, we don't know. Who the combatants are, we don't know. But it'll be a battle for Israel, ultimately the soul of Israel. And according to other tradition, the central person in this, in that battle, is also called Moshiach, Messiah. But this one's called Moshiach ben Yosef, Mo Messiah of the tribe of Joseph. And he'll be killed in that battle. But again, not necessary <laughs> if... They turn to God first and have perfect righteousness among them. I have some other, not snide comments, but some other comparisons to make, but I'm not going to make them here. Um, there have been other um, expressions, let's say, of uh, what purports to be Christianity who have the same set of beliefs, that when a perfect Sabbath is kept, when this has happened by all the people, then he will come again. And so there's this, but there's this other Messiah, the Messiah ben Yosef, that, that will come first and will die in this battle. But in the midst of that, will gather the people because they will see him as a messianic type figure and they will obey him and they will follow him. And he is the Messiah ben Yosef, which is the Messiah of the tribe of Joseph. And the way that they see this is, is that, that the lost tribes, the 10 lost tribes of the northern kingdom are Joseph. And so this Messiah will begin the ingathering of those people. 
because all the people of Israel, not just the surviving kingdom of Judah, will be in, gathered into all this. And so, there, but then when this comes in, there, there will be this, this reunification, let's say, of the northern and southern kingdoms of Judah and Israel. And when that happens during the Messianic age, there will be tremendous prosperity. So the land flowing with milk and honey will be like exponentially increased in what it provides. It'll be even greater than what they experienced in the land when they first came there. And then in addition to that, there'll be so much prosperity that the second benefit of the prosperity becomes then everybody has so much free time because there's so much coming in that the world literally will be devoted to the study of the Word of God. Because if you have free time, that's the intention for what you should be doing in Judaism and Christianity. <laughs> True Christianity. That We should be so hungry for the Word of God that once all our other hungers are sated, then we should be then coming to the Word of God and spending as much time as possible because we want to know more and more and more about Jesus. We want to know more and more about the God of creation, the God of the world and all that. So, so then what it says is that in addition to that, partly because of the focus on learning and study of Torah, then revelation will be exponentially increased too because we don't have all those other concerns. Now our minds can be tuned completely to Him and, and we'll get fresh revelation. I kind of believe that in reading the New Testament, Jesus did that. <laughs> he began to expound in ways that the teachers said, wow, where did he get this? And he's confounding the teachers at 12 in a good way. <clears throat> but that, Jesus has already begun that. And then you know what else he did? He gave you his Holy Spirit so that you can have exponential revelation over people who don't. You can understand not only the Word of God, you can understand the world around you in a different way. I can talk about that philosophically. I, uh, I've got a, a, a person that, that I want to talk about. We're not going to do it today because that would be a rabbit trail for today. But, but there's, a, there's a philosophical principle expounded by at least one person that talks about the, the availability of knowledge and that once you take a leap of faith, in essence, then you actually have access to revelation and information and knowledge that's not available to people who don't. So that there are outside sources of knowledge that are only available by that leap of faith. So we can talk about that later. Um, so we've got that. And then what they said is, is that even the commandments today pale in comparison to the commandments that will be true in the messianic age and most of us hear that and think and that's a good thing <laughs> but it if they're given by a good god they are a good thing and so there's there's this the ability to do great things for god and to glorify him and new ways to be obedient to him and reveal his glory to yourself and to others through the doing of his will happen in the messianic age so it sounds crazy to us to think okay so i can do more commandments yeah well you'll want to because you'll understand the purpose behind those things the purpose is so much greater than anything that we normally think about we normally just take a list of rules and say okay 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 i don't like that but i'll do it 
But that's not the point of the commandments. The commandments is so that you can glorify God and you can begin to know Him more and more and draw close to Him because you're living the way He intended you to live and, and, and prescribed for you to live. They also talk about some other commandments that you can only do in the land, but then also it goes back to only if you have the temple. We don't need the temple. We have Jesus. We have the only sacrifice that ever matters. So I don't have any purpose or need for that. Then there's peace and prosperity that come in that benefit all mankind. I mean, all these sound good, right? I mean, I don't see anything that doesn't sound good. And then there's the belief in the resurrection of the dead. So all the people that have gone before us in their, in their world, every Jewish soul that ever lived will be brought back. And they'll be brought back into the body that they had, but it won't be the same body. It'll be a perfected body. So if you, you know, struggle with eyesight like I do, um, my cataract would be healed. Be, you know, so I, I wouldn't have to deal with all this stuff. So those all are wonderful things. But, we, but do we have a vision? Do the Christians have a vision for that? We should. It, it should be deeply informed by Isaiah, for instance, when, when uh, he talks about all the things that will happen in the age to come should be deeply, deeply embedded in that. And Jesus says, stay awake, be prepared. And I would say there's two things we need to do to be prepared mainly, is that we need to know the Word of God and do the Word of God. If we want to be prepared for the coming of God, then we need to be the people that He would have prepared for Himself, which is to say we need to know the Word of God and we need to do the Word of God. That sounds like an onerous burden, but we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit enables us to know and to understand and then to turn that knowing and understanding into action on behalf of others. And that's why Paul says you've got to do one thing, one thing, he says in Romans 13, love one another. That's it. He says, one, oh, no one anything except to love one another, for this one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Why do you love one another? Because you're creating the image of God. And so in loving one another, we're loving God because we're loving those who are created in His image. And that's, Paul says, that's all you got to do. That's all you got to do. Hmm. <laughs> Jesus says, don't have enemies. Love your enemy." You just made it a little harder, Jesus. <laughs> it's easy for me to love people sitting across from me at my table. It's easier for me to love the people that I choose to love and hang out with. It's easier for me to love most of my family. It's easier for me to love, you know, certain people. And that's the reason that the lawyer has to ask him the very simple question, who's my neighbor? And that's when you get the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's because if I got to love my neighbor, then I need to know who my neighbor is. Mostly what I really want to know who do I not have to love? Who is it okay for me not to love? So Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, and all we know is a man was beaten and robbed. I'd like to know who he is. Because if he's a bad guy, then do I have to love him? Jesus doesn't tell you who he is. He just tells you that a man was beaten and robbed. We don't know anything about him. We don't know if he's Jewish. We don't know if he's something else. We don't know if he's a good man. We don't know anything. And you think, well, you know, that's hard to relate to. Is it really? He died on the cross for me. And I'm not a good man. He died on the cross for people like us. And he says, take up your cross and follow me. Where's that lead? Because <laughs> that's what I want to know. If you want me to follow you, I want you to tell me where you're going. He came and showed us. And he came and told us. He told us where we were going if we follow him. And then he showed us in the resurrection. You'll have eternal life. It's all going to be okay. 
It's all going to be good. Do you have a vision for that? And is that vision compelling enough that you'd point your life in that direction and bet everything on it? He bet everything on us, on the cross. I think maybe we should start trying to repay the, the loyal love he gave us. And we repay that by loving one another, which means we have to show them what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God, which is hopeful, joyful, worshipful, praising people who follow God's commandments and live the kind of life that other people could take comfort from and also want to emulate because of who we are and what we are. And then we should tell them to. It's, it's not really that great a saying to say, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Ultimately, it is necessary because you have to tell people why they're drawn to you. It's because of Jesus. It's because of Christ living in me through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's to His honor and His glory, not mine. And that's why we have to use words. Because people don't just see Jesus in us. They just see we're nice people, we're good people, we're different people. But then we have to tell them why. But the hope is that if we're different enough, in a good way, <laughs> people will ask, why? Give an accounting for the hope that lives in you, Peter says. Be always prepared to give that accounting for the hope that lives in you. The hope and the expectation is people want to want to know <laughs> that you do live with hope in such a way that people are drawn to you and want to know, tell me about that hope. Tell me about the source of that hope that makes you different from me. You don't live with the same burdens on top of you that I live under. The old saying about how you doing? Somebody answers, pretty good under the circumstances. And the answer should be, why are you living under the circumstances? Because you're in Christ. So you don't live under the circumstances anymore. You live with a different kind of a hope that no longer has you under circumstances. You're under grace. You're under glory. And you have the hope of eternal life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that's my thoughts today about what are we looking for? Get a vision, know what that vision is for the future, and know how to get from point A to point B. And then Jesus says, go and tell other people.